Oh, hey, didn't see you there. Don't mind me, just typing on my quirky typewriter keyboard. For anyone who doesn't know, this is a keyboard that was inspired by a typewriter. So it has actual keys, a return key, and a spot to put your iPad to type on. It's been so fun to play with, and we have one quirky keyboard to give away in our giveaway this week. If you go to mission.org giveaway, you can enter for a chance to win, or you can just listen to me type. We also have a second product to give away this week in our giveaway. It's the Muse 2 Brain Sensing Headband. I really like their catchphrase, sitting down is just the beginning. What's really cool about this headband is if anyone has ever tried to meditate before and you're like, man, I'm just anxious about this. I can't stop thinking about the day. So many things going through my mind. Calm down, Stephanie. It's time to meditate. This headband is really nice because it actually has sensors that provide real-time feedback on your brain activity, your heart rate, your breath, and your body movements. And it helps really guide the meditation experience. So we're giving away one of these one of the quirky keyboards, go to mission.org slash giveaway for a chance to win and good luck. I'm Alec Baldwin and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there and welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Sarah Cooper. Sarah is a comedian, speaker, and author of best-selling books, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings, and 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. Sarah co-hosts the monthly stand-up comedy show, You're So Brave, in New York City, and writes regularly on her blog called The Cooper Review. She built her comedy career in between working for companies like Yahoo and Google, where she led design teams. In this episode, Chad and Sarah discuss her time at Google, where she finds inspiration for her writing, and how she got her start in stand-up comedy. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you're calling in from West Palm Beach right now? Yep. What's uh, what's going on out there? What are you up to? Uh, well, my parents are uh, celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this year, so we're doing some planning, and I spent Father's Day with my dad, and uh, so just hanging out here, taking a little vacation. Very cool. So when you're around friends and family, do you get a lot of ideas for jokes, comedy and writing or uh, what's your inspiration there? Yeah, my mom is one of my biggest uh, muses because she's um, my whole family is Jamaican. And um, one of my favorite things is when people who aren't uh, from this country say American sayings uh, wrong. Uh, so <laughs> yesterday she said that she believes that my cousins are into cahoots instead of in cahoots. <laughs> and I had to write that down because I thought it was hysterical. And she, she says things like that instead of like blessing in disguise, she'll say blessing in the skies. Uh, and so uh, I, I love just writing down everything that she says because it's so funny, but I don't know if it'll ever actually turn into anything, but I love it. I'm always making notes. I think that's a uh, fun thing to point out is that sometimes that's how language and memes and jokes emerge, right? Is uh, kind of like a misunderstanding or an accident or misspeaking. No, there's no yeah. mistakes, you know, all the, the mistakes. Exactly. Beautiful gifts. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's, um, I think, a great segue into how do you view humor and why do you think comedy and kind of getting everybody to lighten up is so important? Well, I think it builds... Uh, kind of a bridge between people who might not normally connect. I mean, if you can relate to somebody in terms of what makes you laugh, uh, I think that that moment of laughter 
I have a friend who says that like when you're laughing, you are suspending judgment for a second. And uh, very cool. when we're not judging each other or judging where that person's coming from or wondering if we're better than them or whatever it is, um, we can just kind of be present in the moment and uh, maybe build a better connection. And so I think that's why um, I've always loved humor. I think that it, it always just breaks the tension in any situation um, Hannah Gadsby, her special was amazing. And she talks a lot about breaking the tension and, and how comedians build up the tension so that they can break it and they, and you can get that huge release. And I think that that shared release of tension is just such a necessary uh, part of life. Um, it's, it's necessary for us emotionally and physically. Yeah. I feel like when tension is reduced, when anxiety is lessened or where judgment is not the focal point of a relationship, there's an opportunity for something new to emerge, right? There's an opportunity for both people to be more of themselves or whatever the case is. Um, how have you, you know, how is your writing and your creations and your stand-up, has that led to any new relationships? I mean, I'm sure it has, but I would love to learn more about, um, you know, some of the new relationships that were started because of your creative work. Yeah, I mean, I've met so many people um, through comedy. Um, I started a, a monthly comedy show in the East Village uh, called You're So Brave and with uh, a friend of mine, Nikki McCallum, who actually knew my work before she met me. And we were just doing open mics together. And she comes from the corporate world and I came from the corporate world. And so we kind of had that shared understanding. And she uh, she still uses a lot of the corporate jargon uh, in like her emails and stuff. And I just find it so funny. Like she'll write to like a booker, like a comedy booker and she'll be like, please advise. And I'll, I'll be like, How, why are you saying please advise to this guy who's like up at two in the morning drinking in a, you know, smoke filled comedy room. It just doesn't make any sense. But so we, we kind of get along in that shared, like, like uh, merging of those two worlds. Um, and we called our, our comedy show, You're So Brave, because every time we tell somebody that we do comedy, that's the response is, oh, my goodness, you're so brave for doing that. Um, and, you know, I guess it is kind of brave, but all, at the same time, it's just something that we can't help but doing because we just love, uh, we love writing jokes. We love the sort of the craft of it. Um, but I think also, like, I think the bigger thing is that I've just... Uh, had an increased appreciation for vulnerability. Um, and you realize how comedians get on stage and they build a relationship with an audience by, by making fun of themselves or by sharing something personal. Um, and it's part of the act, but it's also a huge part of building relationships with anybody is just being able to open yourself up um, right. in, any, in any way that you can. And I never really thought about it that way. I've always been sort of the type of person who... Um, had a lot of trouble talking about myself and sharing things about myself. I'm always just like, Oh, nobody really cares, you know, what I think or like my experiences or, you know, I just kind of ask questions of other people and listen to what they're saying, but didn't really realize how important it was for me to take a moment and share something about myself and my background and how important that is for building relationships. So it's, it's had a huge impact on, on my life. Was there a moment or a story that helped you, discover the importance of authenticity or, you know, was there a moment that lessened your fear of sharing who you are and where you're from? I don't know if it was ever really a fear. It was like, I'm, I consider myself like a recovering people pleaser. And so okay. I think I just always put the focus on, 
on everyone else. And I always thought that that was like the best thing to do. Like I, I was known as a consensus builder um, in meetings where I would just kind of take everyone else's opinions and sort of restate them and kind of figure out how we can compromise to come up with a solution and things like that. Um, it was, I think it was just easy. It was just easier for me to not open myself up um, to having my opinion or my thought or, re, you know, my perspective rejected. Right. Um, and I don't know if there was a specific moment. I mean, we did do, um, we taught this class, um, uh, me and an engineer teamed up at, at Google to teach this class about having difficult conversations because people like me like really hate confrontation. And so it's really hard to be honest um, and have a difficult conversation. And so we created this class where through improv, um, you kind of figure out a way to approach a person um, with empathy and thinking about their perspective, but also keeping in mind what you think. Um, and, And through that class, I mean, I realized a lot of these difficult conversations, the best outcomes come from starting them with um, letting your guard down in some way. Um, and, uh, and so then I started to see it as, oh, wait, I'm not being selfish by taking the time to say something about myself. I'm actually doing something good for the relationship. I'm creating a connection. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm showing them that I, I think that they're important enough to me to open myself up to them. Um, and so that was, that was kind of a, a realization for me. It's just like, you can have more memorable interactions with people if you open yourself up. Right. Do you view that as, uh, you know, a way of kind of giving value first before you ask for any type of value in exchange? Um, or in other words, you're showing vulnerability first, uh, to create then a safe space for the other person to be vulnerable as well. Or how do you view that? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, um, I think a lot of relationships these days are transactional and it's kind of like, I'll give you something if you give me something back. Um, and so I don't like thinking of it as I'll share something about me so that you will, you know, you will hopefully give me what I want. Um, I think of it more as like, you know, not to be too dramatic, but like when we die, you know, we want people to, um, remember us in a, in a good way. We want people to remember us at all. That would be great. Um, but also when they think about the relationship they had with us, they want to, you want people to remember you as, as someone who, who gave yourself to them. Um, Mm -hmm. and so if that's important to you, then no matter what you get from the person, it should be important to you to, to create that connection. Um, and you shouldn't think about what you're getting in return. It should just be about that moment that you have with the person and just thinking of it as precious and something that you could, and that you should um, try to uh, get as much connection out of as possible for yourself and um, just for the, the two of you. Very cool. And you mentioned Google. So in a former career, former careers, I guess you were at Google and Yahoo. Um, were there any other tech companies you were at and did you have any big takeaways from your time there? So Google and Yahoo were the big ones that I was at. I worked at a small startup for a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any big takeaways. Did you learn anything uh, like during your time there or? I learned any, uh... nothing, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was teaching them some stuff. No, I made a lot of friends. Uh, I met my husband at Google. 
So that was a big takeaway. I took him away from that. Sure. I think I learned more about myself probably than anything else. Cause you always like, you always think that, you know, if you have a, if there's something else that you're really passionate about, you always think that the reason why you're not doing it is your full-time job. And, you know, um, if you could just, you know, leave your job, then you would, you know, you'll have everything that you need to, to pursue that dream. And uh, I think I learned that a lot of the things that hurt me at work also hurt me when I, you know, try to be a comedian and a writer, um, kind of the same, the same things about being able to open myself up and talk about myself uh, in an honest way and kind of put myself out there. Um, I also really appreciate now looking back um, the company having a mission. Um, you know, Google had this mission to share all the world's information and make it universally accessible. And I always thought, well, this is just cheesy. And like, do we really need a mission? And does anybody really care? And but then now that I've been working on my own for about four years, you know, for a while, it was like, oh, great. You know, I'm, I'm building an audience. I'm, you know, I have thousands of people on my mailing list and it's really great. And then you get to a certain point and you're like, why am I doing this? You know, like, well, what's the point of this? Like, what, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And then I realized, well, I, I need a mission. You know, I need something that's bigger than me. That's going to make me get out of bed. That's going to make me say, no, this is the reason why I really have to do this. Um, and so I think looking back, I, it was a lot of learning about myself. And how did you go about learning about yourself? So I'm super curious about this. Um, were you already kind of self-aware of this challenge or did you, were you asking for feedback? Was it a coach or a therapist you, you went to that helped point it out? Um, I'm always interested in how people gain more self-awareness. Um, so I'd be curious to hear what that process was like. Yeah, I worked with a um, sort of a life coach for like three months and she helped me kind of understand what was important to me and like what I and how I wanted to spend my day. And I think a lot of it was just self-reflection. I don't think that I think that like there wasn't like a specific aha moment. I think I just I've always just been sort of a person that like watches myself. And I think a lot of a lot of that comes out in my work is a lot of it is observing myself and other people. And so the life coach sort of just kind of helped me talk through a lot of those things. And I'm a very good listener and I love listening to people, but there comes a point where I need to be the one who's being listened to and not feel so like anxious about that. I learned that Mm -hmm. like, I always thought of myself as an extrovert. And then I realized I actually thought of myself as a lazy extrovert, a person who was extroverted, but also like really liked sleeping and um, taking naps. Um, And I realized now that I'm actually an introvert. I really do get my energy from being uh, by myself and I do get anxious. I do have anxiety um, speaking in groups and, and things like that. And it's just weird to be drawn to something like stand-up comedy where, you know, you have a microphone and you are the only one talking and everybody, all eyes are on you. And I'm drawn to this thing that actually terrifies me. Um, and just, and just dealing with that, you know, and, and dealing with the voices saying, well, you know, if you're, if you have anxiety, then maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Um, right. and you know, just trying to, to reconcile all of that. And a lot of it, a lot of things have helped, um, learning about other people in this industry who have anxiety, but are also do a lot of public speaking um, and 
uh, it, it just makes you realize that a lot of people deal with these issues and that helps you feel like, okay, I'm not alone in this and it doesn't mean I'm bad at it. It doesn't mean I shouldn't be doing it. It just means that this is something that I have, you know. When you were getting started in stand-up comedy, was there a moment in improv or writing or what led you to the stage basically? Was it a challenge from a friend or what was it? I always wanted to be an actress when I was little and um, I, I tried acting and I wasn't very good at it. I was like very stiff on camera and, you know, one thing about actors is the best ones you know, are just really interesting to watch. And one part of the reason they're interesting is because you don't really know what they're going to do. And they're kind of surprising. Um, and I could never be surprising because I was more just like robotic because I was like, okay, I'm going to say this line in the exact perfect way. And um, so I just, I was just trying everything. I was trying singing lessons and improv and sketch and dance. And uh, I was just doing everything. And the one thing that I hadn't tried was, uh, stand-up comedy and I really f- thought that it was something that might help my acting because I felt like if I could be myself on stage um, in front of people that maybe it would help me be more alive as an actress and I just got on stage and I just really enjoyed it I mean I was very drunk um, I had like <laughs> six or seven beers so like that helped well played yeah and uh, I just got up and told a story about uh, dating this guy that I was dating. And um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed being myself. And it took me a few more years to admit it to myself that I was much more interested in being myself than being a character. Um, so yeah, that's how it happened. I love that last line. Uh, when So when you was, were you like bitten by the stand-up bug or was it a bit intoxicating after, you know, your was your first experience like amazing or uh, what led you back again and again? And um, now, like if I did my homework correctly, you have uh, the monthly stand up show, which you mentioned, and you also have a, a podcast called the Unprofessional Podcast, which is, uh, you know, where you have a bit of comedy and, you know, you're you're really like you're starting to do everything in media and stand up. Um, how did you get there? And what was that process like? Um, it was a, it was a long process, and I will say that like you know stand up is something that I kept doing while I was working at Google, and um, I I think that the thing that kept bringing me back to it was the fact that it felt like something I could do for the rest of my life. I really like this idea that you know as my life changes and as I grow, then my writing changes and and becomes something different. You know, when I first started doing it, I was talking about dating, and now I'm talking about being married and um, I was talking about Google before and now I'm talking about working at WeWork, you know, so I just, I just love that it, cha- it I can write about whatever it is, is, is happening to me, um, at the time. And that just means that, you know, when I'm 80 years old, I can talk about whatever it is 80 year olds talk about. Sure. And I, you know, I haven't had like great success with stand up. I would say like, it's something that I just absolutely love. I'm just a huge comedy nerd and I just love it. But really it, it was the 10 tricks to appear smart in meetings, which I wrote while I was at Google that really um, gave me the, the confidence to leave Google and, and try writing. And I ended up writing the book uh, about appearing smart in meetings. And um, so that I think, that article going viral and, you know, being shared by millions of people, um, 
is what made me realize, oh, there's something here. And um, that was the first time I'd sort of combined comedy with the corporate world that I knew so well. And it really resonated with people. Um, and so I think that when that went viral, it kind of gave me the confidence to leave and pursue writing. And so I've kind of been transitioning kind of like I went from Google and the corporate world to sort of like a corporate comedy um, kind of hybrid sort of career. And now I'm sort of moving more into the inter entertainment world. And um, it's kind of just been pretty natural. Uh, you know, I've just been sort of following what I've been excited about at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in today's world, do you feel it's risky for an employee of a large tech company to try their hand at comedy? I'm curious if you went to PR or the comms team beforehand, or did you just go for it? Um, I just went for it. And I will say that I don't know what it's like at Google now. Um, but uh, back then there was a, um, there was a talent show and I did stand up pretty risky stand up at the time um, at Google. And I think I came in like second place. So nice. um, I would say that the, the people at Google, at least when I was there, had some of the best senses of humor that I had ever encountered. Nothing was sacred. Like everything was something that could be made fun of. And some of it was, you know, sometimes it could be pretty uh, mean, I would say. Um, and I don't know if now, like it's, it's gotta be, it's like way more PC than it was back then, but I never went to PR anywhere. I just did it and it was totally fine. Um, but you know, I will say that part of the reason that I left was that I wanted to be able to say whatever I wanted. And I felt like definitely if I was saying something that Google didn't agree with as an employee of Google, then I might be putting myself in a bad position. And so part of it was like, I didn't want to lead this double life where like I was one person at Google and someone else, you know, when I was doing my standup, I would kind of wanted to just have my career be my life. Yeah. You know? yeah. Double lives uh, seems to be the most exhausting thing you could ever do. Yeah. Um, in, so you mentioned PC and uh, I'd be interested to hear, you know, how, how do you define that? How do you think about that? And does it, does that trend worry you or where do you see our culture at? Well, I think a lot of it is, uh, is generational. Um, I think, you know, certain things that, uh, for me, like there's, there's just a lack of nuance online. Yeah. So people don't, people often don't see like, they, they're just reading words in black and white and they don't see like maybe where it came from or, um, you know, what the intention was versus what the, the outcome was. I mean, there's just yeah. a lot of like jumping down people's throats. Tonality can be misinterpreted, all kinds of things. You know what? I, I've always, I think there was like one, one thing that happened, like I swear it was like 10 years ago, um, some campaign to stop this like uh, dictator in Africa, I believe it was like, somebody's going to look this up and figure out what I'm talking about. But <laughs> I jumped on this bandwagon and um, it turned out to be a complete like lie and it wasn't even real. And yeah. I was like, wow, I got sucked into that. I just believed it like hook, line and sinker. Like I totally believed it. I went crazy on social media because I was, I was just totally falling for it. And then it turned out to be not true. And I think from that moment on, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to jump on any bandwagon, whether it's a great thing or a terrible thing. I'm, I'm just going to take my time and really think about something before I just kind of like 
decide which side I'm on. And I am once a lot of times, like I feel like it happens pretty much every day. I'll read something and people are up in arms about it. And I just won't say anything about it because I just, I just feel like, you know what, like if I still feel this strongly about it in a week, maybe I'll say it, but I don't want to just like jump, jump on it, you know? And I think that people are just like jumping on things like really, really quickly without even thinking about it. Um, Wise words. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I think that's just the way the internet is. And I, I like, I'm, it's like, I love the internet, but I also hate the internet for that reason. I think it's just yeah. kind of like shut down conversation in so many ways. And then sometimes I'm like, yeah, like this conversation should be shut down. I don't want to have that conversation. I don't think people should be saying things like that, but you know, I don't know. Like, I, I also just right. feel like one thing I absolutely hate is when people are like, don't, no one should be saying this or no, like telling other people what they should be tweeting. Like, please don't that's, do that. That's not the road to a happy place for anybody. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. It, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with judgment, right? Where we so rarely have all the context or empathy or the full story behind why somebody did what they did to judge. And I just, I think it's like, it's easy to use the internet to be presumptuous or outraged, and it's much, much harder to use it uh, as an information gathering and context tool, right? Um, because you can you can choose either path. And uh, yeah, that's a good reminder for me. These social media networks are built for outrage. Like outrage is good for them. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunately, like there's no incentive to stop it from happening and to stop people from... Um, just refreshing so that they get more and more pissed and or more and more whatever it is right. or whatever emotion that they're addicted to. Um, and, you know, I just feel, I feel kind of sad for, you know, I kind of, I feel like I'm, I, I sort of, I was like on AOL and I kind of grew up with it and I kind of grew up being a little suspicious of things. And, you know, I know Photoshop very well. So I know that like images can be manipulated. Um mm-hmm you know, I'm following this whole like deep fake thing. And I know that there's going to be like videos that are going to be faked, you know, and, but a lot of, um, (laughs) I just feel like it's so funny because we, we were so scared. Like my, my parents were so scared of me, um, getting online and, and, and doing something crazy or exposing myself in some way. But really I should have been worried about my parents you know, like that generation is the generation that gets on Facebook and they don't know what they're looking at. They don't realize that yes. everything could be fake. And like, there's, there's people that aren't real people. These are bots. Like half of the yeah. people online aren't real people. And they, and it's hard for them to even understand it. And I think that there's a whole generation and it's the boomers that like they're on Facebook and they don't know what they're looking at, you know? Very true. Very true. Which is, I, any ideas on how to help solve that? Because I have no clue. Um, I think, I think, you know, to be radical, I think Facebook needs to just be turned into a messaging utility and get rid of, get rid of the wall. <laughs> I mean, just get rid of it. There you go. I mean, I think they're, I don't know what's happening with it, but I used to really, I, I used to really think that Facebook was going to make a turn and become something that was really good, but I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah. Same. Uh, we can hold out hope, but uh, it's looking pretty bleak <laughs> at the moment. Um, so when I was listening, your other media projects and comedy projects, I forgot to mention comedy versus nerds. Uh, are you still co-producing that show? And could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Comedy versus nerds was, um, a project I was co-producing with Michael Makarov, who is an engineer at uh, Salesforce and, um, 
really just making fun of Silicon Valley and programmers and comedy for tech people. And um, we did several shows in San Francisco. And I think uh, we're still going to be doing a few more uh, this year, later on this year. Um, but it was, you know, a lot of tech people have trouble <laughs> laughing at themselves. And so we kind of wanted to give them a, a nudge to, <laughs> to laugh at themselves and, and get made fun of and get roasted a little bit. And so it's just been a fun way to, to bring those two worlds together. It's a much needed thing because I, in a previous life, was in the military. And when I came to Silicon Valley in the tech world, I was so excited because I thought it would be this uh, hotbed of ideas and interesting takes and uh, radical ideas. And it's a pretty tight knit corporate uh, culture now. Um, how do you how do you view Silicon Valley and um, why is it so important for Silicon Valley to lighten up and laugh at themselves a little bit? Um, yeah, I have a well, I have a little uh, Easter egg for anybody listening. Go look at uh, the first governor of Calif- of San Francisco, of California, actually. Go look at the first governor of California um, and you'll see why we are the way we are <laughs> today. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's just this um, place where everybody's trying to out-cool each other and uh, build the coolest thing and, and work on the coolest thing and what's the coolest, sexiest thing. And it's, uh, it's, you know, I just feel like so many people are working on the wrong things because they're trying to impress each other. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, unfortunately, everything has become this idea of changing the world has just become a buzzword. It's become like this meaningless thing. Um, so it, I, I can't, all I can, all I can say is that like, you know, HBO Silicon Valley has just got it right. And, you know, like they really do it, They really do. It's just, um, and, and it's so hard to make fun of too. I, I, we worked on this musical called Soma, the musical, which was like, um, sort of making fun of, uh, the, the startup culture and, we there's a scene in the musical where um, the this startup guy wanted to have like the coolest party, the coolest launch party ever, and we were like, well, what's the craziest thing that that a startup guy would ask for? And the craziest thing we could think of was uh, robot strippers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I kid you not, six months later at CES, robot strippers. I just got twelve DMs uh, from engineers in the valley who are asking how they can be involved at the next launch party. Um, <laughs> they're a little bit confused, but I'm just kidding. Good. Yeah. So, like, we the, the craziest thing that we could think of uh, became a rea- was a reality within six months. So it's like we can't even make fun of it anymore. So, did you perform that musical, or is that an ongoing musical, or or any asp- yeah any aspirations to make it an ongoing thing? Um. That was the the second incarnation, and yeah, I think that the 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 founder of that actually moved to New York too, and I moved back to New York. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I mean, a big reason I I I it didn't work out with me in San Francisco was I'm not really an outdoorsy person, and uh, I think that if you love the outdoors, it's a great place to live. But I also think that like it's just it's just so many people like my husband describes it perfectly. It's like a city of people and they're all trying to get the same job. They're all in tech and they all want to be a startup founder or they want to be a VP or of a tech company. Like it's everybody doing the same thing. And it's just, I I hope that it will kind of um, expand somehow so that 
because it really feels like a bubble. Um, and it really feels like everybody's sort of doing the same thing. And I, I would, I would say it's a, a pretty fair statement and it's kind of worrisome because if you look at the origins of Silicon Valley or the creation of some of the most enduring companies, I mean, they were pretty quirky, weird places that do not look anything like the average startup today. Um, are you, are you familiar with any Valley history or, uh, do you have any favorite companies here that, um, you know, outside of humor and satire, do you think that there's anybody doing really good work now? Um, I think there's lots of companies doing really good work. Um, but I think that, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like a little bit removed from it at this point. I still, you know, I still really believe in, in Google. Um, and I'm not just saying that because my husband still works there. Uh, but, (laughs) and that's my health insurance. Um, no, that's, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's something else too, where, uh, so my wife recently joined our team full-time, uh, as our co-founder and COO from Google. And one of the things that I always marvel at was every single person I met at Google that she worked with was nice. Every, like every single one, uh, you know, our son, a lot of his baby clothes came as like donations from team members at Google. Uh, they've been very supportive throughout her process of leaving, um, and that's, I think that's always most telling is if you find a, a culture filled with nice people. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are some people that are not so nice and things like that. And I didn't meet everybody there, but you kind of get what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I felt um, working there. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, they're, they, they really do, they really do try and they try to do the best that they can. Um, my, the, my favorite thing about Google now is, um, you know, Google plus kind of like died a horrible death, um, because Google really wanted to get into the social media game. Um, and they just really couldn't. And actually thank God they couldn't because social media is such a mess right now. But, uh, now children, uh, kids, uh, middle school kids are using Google docs as their social media because they're using chat and the like real time collaboration to uh, socialize with their friends and their, their parents will think that they're in there like writing a paper, but really they're just <laughs> chatting, chatting with each other. And so this whole time Google had the perfect social media app and they just didn't realize it with Google docs. And if, if anybody uh, is on the uh, G suite team out there and you're interested in uh, sponsoring, we would love to talk to you. That's um, yeah, we're, we're big fans and it's uh yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to joke around while you're working with people. That's one of the things we've been trying to do here is to make sure that uh, nobody, I don't want people to stop or be afraid to take a risk to be funny um, because it's it's so hard to do if you're not a professional, right? It's, uh, it's something that if you're going to learn and attempt it in public, you're going to fail a couple times. So are there any tips or strategies you have for uh, maybe execs or founders out there who want to bring back humor into their culture? I think just start observing yourself and um, noticing things that you think are funny. Um, A lot of times when you think, oh, I got to start my presentation with a funny story and you sit down to a, you know, a blank Google doc and you can't think of anything. I mean, that's, that's the worst time to come up with something. Uh, So all of, all of my ideas usually come when I'm doing something else, um, taking a walk or doing the dishes or whatever it is. Um, 
And I noticed like the thing I said about my mom, like she, we were just having dinner and she said that at dinner and I wrote it down. So start observing yourself and start observing other people and like collecting those ideas and those stories. Cause I think that a lot of times when you try to be funny, that's when you get into trouble when you try to be funny. But if you try to be as honest as you possibly can, if you tell a story, that's just the truth. um, People will laugh because they see themselves in it because they recognize something about themselves in it or something about somebody they know in that story. Um, And that's the whole reason that, you know, 10 tricks to appear smart in meetings did so well is because people are like, I've done this in a meeting or my boss always asks to take a step back, you know? Um, So, and all of those things were just things that I noticed people doing. Um, So yeah, that's my biggest advice is just to don't try to be funny. Try to be as honest as you possibly can. Um, Don't be afraid to make fun of yourself because if you can, again, combine that vulnerability with that honesty and say something that people laugh at because they can relate to it, then you've kind of hit a home run. Um, And then the other thing that I think a lot of great comedians do is they never ignore how the audience is feeling. And so Mm -hmm. if you're giving a presentation and um, somebody laughs extremely loudly or somebody, you know, says something or yells something out, you know, don't just skate by it, you know, like use it as an opportunity to maybe like have a small side conversation with that person or, or call out the, the extra loud laughter or, or just mention it um, in some way um, because that shows people that you're not just reading a script and you're not a robot, you know, you are actually having a conversation with them and you are paying attention to how they're feeling in the moment. Um, and that's, that's a hard thing to do because you feel like, oh, I got to stay on script. I got to make sure to, to get through this presentation. But those little side things that happen that happen out of nowhere, um, can, can sometimes give you like the best moments of, of any presentation that you're doing. Uh, so yeah, watch out for those. Awesome advice. Sarah, this interview has been awesome. Final question. I guess we should take a step back first and What's your best advice for aspiring stand-up comedians or anyone out there who wants to be funnier? Um, for aspiring stand-up comedians, um, I would say, well, so that this is a piece of advice that I, I think I heard it online pretty recently and it's helped me a lot. It's important to be funny, but it's more important to be interesting. So if you kind of put aside the, um, how can I write the perfect punchline here? Ooh, that's so clever. I can't believe I thought of that. Put that aside and, and just think about what's most interesting to you and focus on that. The humor will come after that. Um, but it's just, it's more important to, to be someone who's interesting to listen to. So focus on that. I love it. Sarah, this has been awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to Mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera, to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the mission's daily newsletter at mission.org.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.